Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition. We've got a very special show today. Today's show is an excerpt of a conversation I had with Chuck Sutherland on the Real Estate Experts Summit. On today's show, we're talking about my origin story and how I made the transition from corporate life into the world of real estate investing. Enjoy today's episode with yours truly on the Real Estate Experts Summit. All right, welcome everybody to the second day afternoon session of the Real Estate Experts Summit. Today, we're really privileged to have Victor Menashe here on our call. And Victor is a nationally known uh, investor, developer, and uh, investment manager. Uh, he's done work in apartments and uh, uh, assisted living, and he'll tell us more about that in a little bit and give us his view of the uh, the near future or long-term future in uh, real estate in the United States. He's also the author of the book, Magnetic Capital, which I just downloaded and in Kindle this morning, and I am going to be anxiously looking to, to uh, read that. So, Victor, welcome. Great to be here. Awesome. So, why don't you tell us about, you know, how you, where you came from and how you got into to where you're, uh, the work you're doing now, like from, not, you know, like a, like the cliff notes of your business life. So I actually got my start in uh, my, my professional career as a um, as an electrical engineer designing microprocessors. That's really where I started my career. And it was some of the most fun that I've ever had in my professional life, working with super smart people, working on incredibly cool projects. I've got a microprocessor that was responsible for processing about 52% of the phone calls in North America for a little over a decade. Wow, um, I've got uh, chips in everything from the seatback displays on uh, most Airbus aircraft to I've got a chip in the Patriot missile. Uh, I've got a chip in uh, Pachinko Apache slot machines in Japan that are made by Sammy Sega in partnership with NVIDIA. And the list goes on and on. I'm in color printers, um, storage networks from Hewlett Packard, all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, some of the most fun that I had in my life. And yet, at a certain point in my career, I was traveling back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks, building a new cellular network there. And it was burning me out physically, emotionally. You know, those 13-hour trips with a 12-hour time zone difference, uh, after a little while, after a couple of years, takes a bit of a toll on the body. And and uh, decided to take a bit of a hard left turn in my career and move full time into the world of real estate investing. And the time, you know, back then was 2010. 2008 had just happened, and I saw really the opportunity of a lifetime to jump into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it was a great time. It was hard to make mistakes. We made plenty, made a bunch, but uh, still the market was a little bit more resilient for us, having entered the market at that you know best time. And then. Then you've been. What have you been working on since then? So we started out. Uh, started my career actually investing locally here in Ottawa, Canada. Ottawa is our nation's capital, and uh, saw an opportunity that's not your traditional real estate opportunity. Again, go back two thousand eight, two thousand nine is when I started this, and we were seeing up at that time a steady flow of uh, contractors, uh, parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers who would be visiting Ottawa on a medium term basis. So a 12 month unfurnished lease was useless to them. Airbnb didn't exist at that time. 
And so we really saw an opportunity to provide fully furnished executive suite rentals that were matched at the price point of their housing allowance. You know, so if you go to an all suite hotel at 3500 a month, it was way above the housing allowance. So we figured out what that number was and said, what product can we deliver at that price point that's going to be compelling? And, you know, we simply started buying uh, within walking distance of Parliament, and uh, we were always full. And it was a it was a good business. It wasn't an outstanding business, but it was a good business. That's how I started. Today, uh, we're 90% new construction. We're building multifamily apartment complexes. We're building senior housing. Uh, just finished, and uh, we're partway through lease up on a workforce housing RV park. Um, we're you know we do a steady stream of multifamily apartment buildings, and so that's that's kind of my life today. And uh, where are you? In, uh, you're investing in the states, I know. So where in the in the United States, the states are you investing? Uh, we had started in the Chicago market. We're not active in that market any longer. Uh, it's been a difficult market for us. It's I think a difficult market for a lot of people for a whole host of reasons. Uh, so we exited that market a couple of years ago, but we've been very successful in Philadelphia. Uh, we again been doing majority new construction in that marketplace. And it's been great for us. Uh, we've employed a strategy that that I coined a bunch of years ago, and uh, we call that strategy "buy on the line, move the line." And so, you know, what is the line? The line is that line that exists in virtually every city in America, where on the one side you've got coffee shops, you've got maybe art galleries, you've got people walking their dogs, and they take their dog, you know, for a hairdo, and then you go two blocks in the other direction, and you're in the hood. Mm-hmm. Wherever you may be listening, uh, you can I'm sure you can imagine that line in your own home city. So we saw that line and said, you know what? Yeah, we can buy properties for pennies on the dollar, just on the wrong side of the line, redevelop them. And when we do that, we're going to get rental values that are commensurate with the good neighborhood. We're going to get valuations that are commensurate with the good neighborhood. We didn't expect to get 100 cents on the dollar, but we figured we'd get 90, 95 cents on the dollar. And it turns out that we did every bit of that and then some. Uh, meanwhile, we were buying distressed property at 10 cents on the dollar. And so that created very created the conditions for us to create a tremendous amount of value and create an interim exit where that exit in almost every case was a refi. And that allowed us to recover 100% of our invested capital and then go do it again. So that was the strategy that we developed starting back in 2011. Uh, we've been employing it ever since, and it's really a turn-the-crank type strategy. And whether you're doing you know, four units, 10 units, or 200 units, the math is pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same. And so even today, on the larger projects that we're doing, uh, you know, today we're invested along the Gulf Coast, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it's, the same, it's the same formula. It's you know, just create enough value that you can cash out refi, now you're holding the proverbial no money down deal. You've got infinite return. Your investors have infinite return at that point. And, you know, the risk profile changes so that you now are sitting on asymmetric risk. And, uh, you know, you flip into non-recourse financing for the permanent financing. And, and then you're now just operating a, a money printing machine, which is great. Yeah, it's an awesome strategy. That's, I never never thought of it that way. So what are you doing in the Gulf Coast? So there's been a lot of development along the Gulf Coast. And in particular, uh, there's one town that we, we got turned on to back in 2013, 2014. It's not a household name. 
You know, they don't have an NFL football football team or anything. The town is uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, and it's just on just east of the Texas-Louisiana border, on, um, just a little bit inland from the Gulf. And this small town of about 200,000 people has a tremendous amount of infrastructure going in, in particular for the natural gas industry. And the reason this town exists where it does, at least as a hub, is because of a network of natural gas pipelines. It's a fair, it's a well-protected seaport, 19 miles inland from the Gulf. And the, it started out as a natural gas importation facility. And those natural gas pipelines fan out from Lake Charles, Louisiana, all over the country. And with the just incredible growth of domestic production of natural gas, those pipelines have been turned around and it's now an export facility, leveraging the existing infrastructure. Uh, So that just creates a tremendous opportunity. And so now, today, that town has, and this is not an exaggeration, it's a huge number, they have $118 billion of natural gas, petrochemical, and seaport expansions. I mean, it's it's a big number to even wrap your mind around what, you know, the scale of what we're talking about. You know, for example, there are uh, liquefied natural gas plants like the Driftwood facility that is about to break ground later this year. That facility, when completed, it's it's only a $15 billion plant, and I say only in quotation marks. Uh, That plant alone will double the current U.S. export capacity for natural gas. Oh, my gosh. Um, You know, so, you know, that, that plant alone will do 27 million metric tons of natural gas a year. That's incredible. That's incredible. And is that natural gas coming from uh, all the way from the Dakotas or coming from West Texas or Louisiana? Where is it coming from? It's coming from all over. It's coming from uh, East Texas, West Texas. There is some export capacity in Corpus Christi. So some uh, of the West Texas is headed down south towards Corpus. But it's coming from Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, from all over. Wow. Well, I can see why you uh, why you latched on to... Uh, uh, Lake Charles. That's, that's, that's incredible. We did. And, you know, they need everything. They need, uh, they need housing. They need workforce housing. They need office. They need storage. Uh, they need grocery stores. Like, they just need everything mm-hmm. because they're, they're really on such a growth tear. And there isn't the local skilled labor. I mean, the, you know, we, for example, we built um, a workforce housing RV park. A lot of the workers that are there on a temporary basis, they will, rather than spend their housing allowance on, um, uh, on a hotel or something like that, they would rather um, buy an RV, put it on a payment plan, and then at the end of their contract, they have an RV that they own. So the need for RV for RV sites is through the roof in that town as well. Gotcha. Um, and it's you know it's a good solution for them. Uh, you know it's kind of win win for everybody. It sounds very familiar when we were up in uh, North Dakota, uh, Dickinson, North Dakota. The oil boom uh, hit and. I mean, people were sleeping in the back of their trucks. Yeah. You know, they, there's such a boom for employment and, uh, and uh, everybody's gravitated there, but there was no apartments. There was few hotels. There was people were literally having FEMA type camps yeah. in the middle of nowhere that they were sleeping in their bus or their RV or on the ground. I mean, it was tents. It was incredible. So I can imagine what that development looks like, that explosion of development that is necessary for to support that infrastructure. I think the big difference between Lake Charles and North Dakota is that North Dakota was all about exploration. And of course, exploration is tied to the price of oil. Right. So, 
come in, you drill a bunch of wells, uh, 90 days later, you move on to a different site. So it was very much a transient type situation. These mega plants, uh, I mean, we're talking plants that are like 1200 acres each. I mean, these are soldered into the ground. They're not moving anywhere. And their success spans economic cycles. It's not tied to the price of oil or gas. You know, it's really all about production. It's about distribution. In many cases, uh, you know, natural gas is not a convenient thing to work with. It really isn't. You you, you can't put it in trucks. You've got to really, it's pipeline infrastructure. That's really what you need. Or you've got to compress it 600 to 1 and put it on a ship. Uh, th- those are your, your choices. In a lot of cases, what's happening in Lake Charles is they're building production plants, petrochemical plants, that take the natural gas, use that as a raw input to produce finished product. For example, uh, Sasol, just a uh, company from South Africa, just completed uh, an $8.5 billion ethane cracker. Now, that's not a household word, but what an ethane cracker is, is it takes methane, which is natural gas, converts it to ethane, and converts it to ethylene, and then eventually polyethylene. So you're basically making plastic out of natural gas, just using a chemical process. And so, you know, you're actually producing something. The viability of that is, again, not tied to the price of natural gas. Our consumption of plastic, sadly, continues. Well, I hope you enjoyed that first part of my conversation with Chuck Sutherland on the Real Estate Experts Summit. As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.